The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? And if you haven't put your name on the waiting list for Chen, now is the time to do so because he will be accept, accepting uh, new subscribers uh, the first couple of weeks of July. So that date is approaching fairly quickly. Uh, if you're interested in Chen's letter, uh, please go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and put your name on that waiting list, and you will be contacted at the very first of uh, July. Uh, when Chen will be accepting new subscribers. You can subscribe to my newsletter anytime at miningstocks.com as well. Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show and encourage you to continue sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, praises, what have you, to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. And I would like you uh, also to invite you to follow me on Twitter. J. Taylor Media is my handle on Twitter, J. Taylor Media. Uh, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show uh, are Carlisle Goldfields, RN Resources, and Cornerstone Capital. Uh, Cornerstone Capital Resources. Regarding our discussion last week uh, with James Turk of Gold Money and Roy Sabag of BitGold, I would like to suggest that you go to jtaylormedia.com to listen to an extended version of that discussion. The entire interview is about 49 minutes long, but about half of that uh, interview occurred last week live on this show, but there just simply was not enough time to cover some of the very important issues I believe people need to understand about BitGold. So uh, after our show was over, I continued uh, to discuss these issues with James and Roy and recorded that and then uh, spliced that together with the first part of last week, uh, uh, with what you heard on uh, this show last week uh, to make an, uh, a 49-minute uh, uh, interview, which I think really does cover very extensively most of the issues 
uh, and the products that will be available not only at BitGold but also at Gold Money. Uh, very, very exciting story. Uh, keep in mind that BitGold is a payment system that can do everything that PayPal can do, but it can do it better. And the reason it can do it better is because gold is at the center of this product. Gold is an asset money, whereas the money you and I are forced to use over the barrel of a gun is a liability money that is created out of thin air by what can only be described as government and bank counterfeiters. Well, that's really what they're doing. They're creating money out of nothing, using it for their own purposes, uh, and essentially stealing wealth from everybody else. What gives me confidence, though, that BitGold can work and why I rushed out to buy some shares myself is that this company's success is dependent not on some ideological gold bug views like those that I have, but because it will simply lead to a safer, less costly payment system. In other words, I I believe Roy Sabag and his team have simply created a better mousetrap. The shares should be trading in the United States very soon. I'm not sure this week or next week. Uh, And Roy told me also that it's either this week or next week. I'm not quite clear. Uh, I don't remember what he said, but next week or this week, Americans will be able to participate in BitGold. As you recall, last week he explained that Americans were excluded from using BitGold, but uh, apparently all the regulatory issues have been settled and Americans will be able to use it as well as the Canadians are currently using it now uh, and others around the world. Uh, I wanted to tell you also that I have uh, interviewed Ron Perry of Metanor. Uh, Metanor Mines is a company that I've had uh, on this show before. Uh, you can read my, or you can listen to my interview at uh, J. Taylor Media. Uh, Metanor is selling at a mere four cents or somewhere in that range. But with Osisco now venturing into Metanor's backyard, and with Metanor having the, uh, the the milling facility that it has, all the other infrastructure it has, along with the producing gold mine, the Bachelor Mine, well, I think Metanor is likely to be a takeover candidate in the near future. Thus, I think the risk is very low. And the upside very substantial for those that buy the shares at, uh, at or around the current four cent range. Uh, but again, I would suggest go to jtaylormedia.com to learn why I think Metanor traded MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the US, and why I think this is an attractive uh, speculative buy at this time. Well, before we get into today's show, uh, I would also like to just comment very briefly on Novo Resources, which still remains my own top. Uh, pick, my personal top pick. Uh, I will be interviewing Quentin Henning in the near future, but he is gearing up for production uh, down there in his Australia pro- uh, project uh, by the end of this year, probably early 2016. And the economics look extraordinary from what I can see. Now, I will be writing about this stock in my weekly letter, uh, probably some more this weekend. So please consider subscribing uh, if you have not already done so, because I think you really need to keep on top. I believe Novo Resources uh, is one of the most exciting stories I've heard in a long time. So well, let's get to today's show. Um, I've, I've uh, titled it, Frank Holmes Discusses Jets, Bricks, and Gold. Well, Frank Holmes of U.S. Global is our main guest today. And Sean Wallace uh, is the president and CEO of RN Resources, was scheduled to be with us, but uh, scheduling issues kept him from being available today, but it is my understanding he will be with us next week. Well, the good news, though, even though 
even though Sean can't be with us, I was able to convince Michael Oliver to join me, and he'll be with me in just a few minutes here after our first commercial break. He'll be here to talk about his latest views on the important markets like stocks, bonds, and precious metals. He always has great insights. It's always a pleasure to have him with me. And I do hope that you will join me next week, however. Check in with Sean. Uh, Sean Wallace, because Aran Resources and this team that Sean uh, is a member of have had a tremendous success in the past, and I really truly believe they're going to do it again with their project, a very high-grade gold project, multi-million ounce uh, potential deposit there in the Nunavut uh, next to Agneagle Eagle. I think they're going to uh, have another, I think the chances are very good they'll have another success up there. But getting back to, the, to this week's show... Uh, in just a couple of minutes, uh, as I mentioned, we'll be talking to Michael Oliver. Um, and, you know, we'll ask him about what he thinks about this equity market that just continues to make new highs uh, in spite of all the doomsdayers uh, that are out there saying that uh, this is the end, this is the end, this is the end. The stocks continue to rise. Um, now, at U.S. Global, Frank Holmes has launched an airline ETF named U.S. Global Jets. Uh, it trades in the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol JETS, J-E-T-S. What is it in the airlines industry that Frank sees that caused him to put together an airline ETF? We'll ask him that, and we'll ask him also about some comments he recently made about gold. Uh, He wrote an article called Gold in the Age of Soaring Debt, uh, and he's suggesting some numbers that might sound absolutely lunatic fringe. Uh, Some very, very high numbers. Well, those are numbers if the total amount of debt in circulation in the world was backed by gold. It would be an outrageously high number. So we'll ask Frank about that. Um, so Frank is, you know, his U.S. global funds is invested all around the world. So we want to also ask him some things about Asia, uh, about uh, perhaps Russia if we get a chance. Some of the uh, issues involving gold and the potential to uh, restructure a monetary, a monetary system, uh, perhaps from the petrodollar onto a gold-backed dollar. Uh, so there's lots of things to talk to Frank about. Uh, it's going to be an interesting discussion, I'm sure. Uh, and um, when we get back here with Michael Oliver, we do have to take a break right now. But when we come back, Michael be, will be with me, and we'll be talking to him about his latest views on the stock and bond and, and precious metals market. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Michael Oliver. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. 
Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again a guest who has probably now made about as many appearances on this show as anyone. I'm talking about Michael Oliver, whose technical work I have been watching closely for the last couple of years, and uh, it's a a work that I have gained increasing confidence in over time. And, uh, you know, it's it's, it's easy to say, get in, get out, but Michael is watching uh, day by day what's going on in key markets and uh, I think does a very good job of uh, keeping his readers um, posted on on where things are at any given time. We don't want to get out too early in a bull market, uh, but we don't want to wait too long either. So, uh, Michael, thanks for joining me again. Good to be here, Jay. Always good to talk to you. You know, uh, we'd like to focus on the equity markets first, perhaps. Um, And Dr. Robert McHugh is another technical analyst that I pay some attention to. Uh, And let me just read to you, Michael, what he wrote, and I want to get your comments on it. He says, and I quote, Stocks are working very hard to finish the last rising leg of the rising bearish wedge that started in October 2014. We have to be patient while this terminal market fights for each breath. This is what we would expect as stocks put in a major top. There is less and less participation in the rally. Smart money is distributing shares to weak hands. The market has lost a ton of upside momentum, as evidenced by the difference between average new highs and new lows, shrinking as prices approach this top. The NYSE cumulative advanced decline line has diverged bearishly versus stock prices, and an official Hindenburg omen is on the clock. Many of our key indicators have lengthening bearish divergences with stocks. A multi-decade megaphone top pattern is essentially complete. All signs of a coming top and the start of a major bear market. This quiet period will lead to panic selling, we believe, before the end of 2015. So the question to you, Michael, is, uh, you know, I know you don't use the same technical tools that Robert McHugh uses. You may use, I don't know, you may use some of them or look at some of them from time to time. You have your own unique proprietary technology, which is what I think makes you very valuable. But what would you, any comments on, on McHugh's views of the equity market? Uh, he and I should have a beer together because we're in total agreement. <laughs> uh, I have respect for him. He's an Elliott Wave theorist, and I think he's, yes. he's a good one for that, for that uh, mode of discipline. Uh, uh-huh. He analyzes price, of course, and uh, I analyze price secondarily. I look at momentum yes. of price first and foremost, uh, long-term, intermediate, and short-term, and so forth, and in various markets. And I see... 
I, I, I try not to have vibes or feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been around in the market since '75, so you could, it's easy to have feelings. And oh. I'm not a good—I'm not a good person to ask. What do you feel? You know, I—I'm uh, as probably as amateur as anybody. But over time, I think I've matured and, and, and inculcated my own technical work, and to where it is so heavy right now in terms of its gravity, in terms of what it's implying, that I think he's probably right. I think we're really close. Uh, I'm not sure whether you're going to make new highs in the S&P. We made highs two months ago when we've not exceeded them. Uh, and by the way, those highs were where early in the year I thought the highs should be, around 2130, uh, give or take a percent. So far, we've not exceeded that high, and we're, we're trying our damnedest to do it, but it's, it's very slow. He's right. We're very narrow. Uh, in fact, you can circle a BTK index or the ETFs of the biotech sector. That's your leadership. It is not technology. There's no sector out there that's burning up the charts. Technology's been flat versus the S&P for a year. In fact, you can look at some of the technology ETFs, like XLK, for example, and you'll see we're toying with prices we were at a year ago. So there's no explosion there. It's biotech only. And uh, it's a speculative fever. I mean, there's good fundamentals behind it in terms of future expectations, not necessarily present realities. But uh, it's very much akin to what the Internet.com bubble did in 2000. Uh, many people preached about how what great things would come from Internet, and, and they were, if anything, understating the reality that ultimately came from the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem was that the Internet sector priced itself off the page. And so it dropped 89 cents on the dollar before it was over with. Mm-hmm. Uh, biotech is effectively in the same condition now, and I'm looking for the turning point there. And I think mm-hmm. if you can time the biotech downturn, you could probably time the equity market downturn, uh, because I think the leadership is literally that narrow at this point. Um, yeah, well, that, that, now, that certainly uh, uh, certainly is in line with what uh, McHugh was saying, for sure. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Go ahead, you had another thought. Well, uh, the, the bond markets are the interesting part right now because obviously they're huge, they're bigger than the equity markets. Sure. It's the market that everybody thinks, well, you know, if the CBs or central banks are in control of events, which has been the assumption for at least three years, if not longer, uh, it's now at the point of being a religion, uh, and you can't buck the Fed or the ECB or the Bank of Japan. Well, the bond markets just did, and they did it big time. And it's not because the central banks allowed it to happen. It happened in their face. Yeah. The ECBs have been buying French oats and Italian bonds and so forth for uh, months now, since January, their new QE. And those markets uh, doubled their interest rates in a matter of weeks. Uh, in fact, you know, our 30-year bond, a 30-year treasury, went from 2.2% yield to 3.2 in a mm-hmm. heartbeat. Uh, a lot of people look at the long-term yield charts on that market and uh, draw their trend lines and so forth. In fact, in a recent uh, MSA report, I included that chart along with the momentum chart. And all I can add to that issue is we've reached 3.2% a recent high, and again today on the 30-year. You get up to about 3.72% and much above there, and you're breaking out over a 30-year downtrend line in terms of annual momentum of the bond. And a bit above there in yield, around 4%, or 3.95 to be more precise, you're breaking out on the price charts of the yield charts uh, going back 30 years. So we've already covered two-thirds of the turf needed to achieve a major breakout, mm. indicating a rising yield. So there's not a lot more room here. Uh, and I, I have a suspicion that these government debt markets 
have it in for the equity markets. In other words, they're not going to stop their slide in price and rise in yield until they spark a response, a temper tantrum, out of the equity markets. And that's kind of where I think you'll get your first bond market rally is once the bonds and, and T-notes and so forth have in, encouraged fear in the equity markets. Oh. And we haven't obviously haven't reached that point yet. I think it'll be a rapid tipping point event when it happens. Yeah. You, you had an interesting uh, article titled Judas Goat. Can you talk to us about what you meant, that's, Judas that's Goat? That's the debt market. Yeah, the, uh, okay. uh, they're, they're leading <clears throat> the equities to the slaughter. Uh, and I think that this, uh, you know, I, I sent out a report today. And uh, by the way, my site is olivermsa.com. Thank you. Uh, but the, uh, on the T-note market, the, the T-note futures, <clears throat> that's a 10-year debt market, which is comparable to the 10-year bonds in Germany and so forth. Um, <clears throat> the action there, even on a price chart of the 10-year notes going back uh, eight years, is challenging a major price chart trend line. In fact, it's below it right now. Uh, you don't want to close the month, and there's only, what, f- uh, five trading days left in the 10-year note futures around where you are now because it indicates a whole new leg of decline, rise, and yield uh, about to begin, which is, that's the kind of event that I think that if you move that one tectonic plate, namely the debt markets, which, again, the public thinks is the most under the control of the CBs, yeah. if you can demonstrate they're not, then all faith goes out the window, and then who's going to support the equity markets if they couldn't hold their own bond markets together? Oh, my goodness, and I, yes. I think that's what gold's waiting on as well. I know there's a lot of frustrated gold bulls out there who think that at any moment we're going to open the bottom up and go drop down to $1,000 or something. It's always mm-hmm. possible. Uh, but I think gold is doing exactly what stocks have been doing for the last number of months, and that is just sit here. Mm-hmm. torture people on both sides of the equation. <laughs> uh, you know, if I, were, if I were a gold bear right now and I shorted gold a year and a half, two years ago at 1180, uh, I'm at the same price today. Yeah, interesting. You know, I'm not making money either, so oh. uh, you got to look at it that way. Uh, yeah. Oh. That's, anyway, that's... I think the bond markets are our first important tectonic plate to move, and the other two we're watching very carefully week by week, month by month, of the equity indexes and the precious metals markets. You made some uh, observations about resource stocks in your weekly letter that came out this weekend. Uh, specifically, you looked at base metals and precious metals mining stocks. Would you care to share your views of the two sectors within the mining uh, community? Well, yeah, absolutely. The commodities as a whole, including the base metals and the precious metals and grains and sugar and so forth, basically all peaked in their recovery from the, the, the 2008 lows. They peaked in 2011. And they declined fairly seriously. Oil joined in late, you know, just last summer and fall. Uh, it was a laggard to the group. But um, this collapse has occurred, and therefore the performance of such stocks as BHP, Billiton, and Rio Tinto, and so forth, the iron stocks, has been pathetic versus the S&P. Not only have they underperformed the market, they've actually gone down in price. The same has been true with gold mining stocks. <clears throat> so you can lump them all together as metals miners. But in mm-hmm. fact, if you do a little more subtle investigation, you'll see that one the spread difference between the base metal miners and the S&P, while it continues down, that's not the case with the gold miners. They've stabilized. In fact, most gold miners stopped dro- dropping last November, whereas if you go back and look at BHP and so forth, where it was last November, or look at, uh, uh, let's see, um, uh, Freeport McMoran. Freeport McMoran, you're right. Copper, uh-huh. copper and gold, but the copper primarily. Uh, where it was last November, it's sharply below there. Huh. But the gold stocks have not joined in that last six months of decline, and I think that's important. I think it's a hint 
that while the economy of the world remains negative, as evidenced by the base metals and their, their miners, the performance of those, those markets, it is not remaining negative for the gold miners, such that you could have inflation and a weak economy at the same time, is sort of the hint there. I'm still harking back to the uh, 1976-77 period, where that same phenomenon occurred. We had a weak domestic and global economy, and yet we had resurgence of inflation uh, that, that enjoyed the last three or four years of the 70s, uh, the commodity markets gold, led by gold, whereas equities did nothing during that time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the 80s that the equity market could finally get its motor going. The, the commodities took all the liquidity that was provided by the central banks then and ran with it. And I'm seeing the evidence of that now in the, the issue of the deflation, which everybody's fearful of, uh, Robert Prechter, for example, is, it's his theme right now is much more deflation. I can see some more in some commodity markets, oil, base metals, and so forth. I don't see a lot more. I think they've mm-hmm. largely shot their, uh, whatever they're going to do, they've done it. And uh, I think a lot of commodities are on the edge of turning up now. I would say the grains, sugar, for example, the agricultural markets look poised to turn up, whereas some markets still look like there's more downside. It's a mixed picture, but it's stabilizing. So I don't buy into the argument of this ongoing collapse in prices. I think if there's a collapse in prices to come, it's in the one that hasn't collapsed, yeah. namely the equity well, markets. Yeah, and the debt markets, of course. And the debt markets, yes. <laughs> the biggest, the granddaddy of them all. Uh, right. uh, let me ask you, with respect to gold, you you put out some key numbers for gold and silver. Uh, what? And, you know, you usually look at it like month to month, right? So if we get into July, what are sort of your target numbers for gold and if you have one for silver as well? I get very specific in in the market reports to subscribers. But in general, I'll I'll say this. This applies both to gold, silver on one side and equities on the other, uh, uh, non-gold equities, S&P and so forth. Uh, About 3% above the current market, silver and gold next month. Mm -hmm. Close the month there. I would be very excited if I'm a bull. I would be very excited. I think that they were headed up. That's uh, only, you know, 3%, no big deal. Uh, yeah. In the equity markets, I think you've got a 1% tolerance. I think if you find yourself about 1% below where you're trading right now, either closing this month out, so you open next month there, or trade there next month, you're in trouble. And so I'm, now I've seen enough movement in the debt markets to be convinced that that, that plate has moved. Mm-hmm. And I'm still looking for these other two to shift their balance. And they're both within, you know, single-digit percents of doing much in terms of changing the major trend down in equities, up in gold. And so, it, it, one good day, you know, at the right time, you're there. So. Yeah, well, for sure. That's, that's absolutely right. You know, we have a couple of minutes left yet. Um, I want to go back to the bond issue, the boond. Uh, you know, you mentioned, I think, in one of your recent missives, you talked about uh, the German Bund being r- very near a critical level. And the Bund, of course, was the one it moved uh, earlier than the treasuries, the, the German mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, debt, uh, sovereign debt instrument. Uh, where does that stand today? I don't know if I haven't had a chance to look well, at it myself. Low, uh, first off, the peak was around 162 on the Bund futures. Uh-huh. And this is the equivalent to the U.S. 10-year note in Germany. Uh, uh-huh. And this is the, quote, most stable debt instrument in Europe. I mean, it's not France, it's not Italy, it's Germany, okay? Yeah. Uh, yet it went from 162 and dropped into the 148s. Did it in a matter of a few months. Started uh-huh. in April and recently. Now, we're in the 150 right now, around 150 today. So we're not at the low, but we're close. I think you go mm-hmm. about three points below that low that we made uh, a few weeks ago, and a whole new can of worms opens up. 
So what it's trying to do is hang in here at a level that uh, you know it can it can try to post a rally, but the pressure is still on. And and if you look at the UST notes, they went back to their low today. Yeah. I mean, in the high in yields that they've seen. So the same with the thirty-year uh, U.S. So the pressure is still on, and I'm not at all sure that we've seen the near-term low in these markets in terms of price or high in yields. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't stop here. That may be the window where I put out a report today, at, uh, again, OliverMSA.com, called uh, Tantrum. And I showed that T-note chart. And if that T-note chart doesn't stop where it is now, I think you're in that window where the debt markets, just a little bit more, you create a total uh, water churns to ice type phenomenon in stocks, you know, chemical change. Stocks have been ignoring the rise in yields. Yeah. As if, well, it doesn't matter. The CBs are still in control. That's the right. assumption. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, as long as people believe that. Of anything, you know? Yeah, as <laughs> long as people believe that. I mean, that's that's the key, isn't it? It's all about confidence. And when that confidence is shattered, then uh, then you're going to see some real fast movements in those that plate is tectonics. The fundamental of our time. That's the yeah, tactical yeah. fundamental. You can talk about anything else, earnings and all, et cetera, et cetera. The tactical fundamental is the belief structure in central banks control asset prices. Yeah. Oh, and if you discover that. they don't, you have to change everything. Well, I think uh, using a geological term, I think we may be looking at a gigantic subduction zone occurring right. when that day happens. And I'm not cheering for it, believe me, Michael, but you know. I'll have the title of the report after that. <laughs> What's that? I'll have What's the title that? report that, the subduction zone. Yeah, a gigantic subduction zone. You, you come up with some very colorful titles for your charts, like Tantrum, you said. I'm looking forward to reading that one. I haven't yet. But I would tell my listeners, it's OliverMSA.com, Oliver. M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert, OliverMSA.com. Go there, folks. This guy has really got a lot of, I think, very timely and important information to pass along to you. That's why he's on this show almost every week. Whenever I have a chance, I get Michael on. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with me once again, and all the best. Thank you again, Jay. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be back uh, after the commercial break with Frank Holmes of the U.S. Global Group of Funds. Frank will have some very interesting things to say, I'm sure, about Jets, his new ETF as well. Of course, we're going to ask him about precious metals, too. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Frank Holmes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Frank Holmes. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Funds, uh, which specializes in natural resources and emerging markets investing. Of course, uh, if you have been in the markets for any length of time, you've certainly seen uh, Frank's uh, friendly face on television numerous times in all the major networks. Uh, Thanks for joining me again, Frank. Well, it's great to be back, Jay. Always good to talk to you, and I, I just, uh, you know, you are a man that comes up with uh, with different ideas, uh, and that's what I really like about you. You're always, uh, it, you know, it's not warmed over pablum with you. You're always coming up with different ideas, and your newest one, uh, launching this, uh, the uh, your jets, that is the ETF, U.S. Global uh, Jets ETF, trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol JETS, J-E-T-S, uh, you know, the airline industry has been hurting for some time, Frank, and I, you know, I can remember uh, sitting on an American Airlines uh, seat and coach and sitting next to a pilot and way back in the back. He had to take the middle, uh, the middle seat because he was flying free uh, on American Airlines. And we were talking, you know, how could this plane be filled and American Airlines still losing lots of money from Dallas to New York, I think it was flying. And, you know, the airlines industry was in tough shape, but it's doing quite well now. But I'm wondering, was it uh, uh, what what caused you to decide now to launch this ETF called Jets? Well, I was getting nowhere complaining. I flew you know, on a regular basis. I fly hundred times a year. Uh, last month, I did around the world. I would carry on in seven days. Um, so I'm a, a, a regular, uh, uh, I guess, passenger of the air. And I just noticed the fees are going up and the change fees and, and the delays, etc. So I um, uh, noticed that there was a flight from nonstop to San Antonio to Seattle. It was Alaska Air. So, wow, that's a brand new uh, flight. This is going back several years. And I said, this is uh, interesting. It's a one-third the cost of American. Uh, leaves at a great time. Perfect uh, experience. So I started analyzing this, the company, and uh, it met all my tests for growth and revenue, uh, growing at more than 10%, 20% growth in earnings and cash flow, uh, and 20% returns on equity. So I bought it the Homes Fund, and it doubled. Uh, and I became quite interested in, in sort of better understanding what was taking place with the industry. And what I noticed is that... Um, the, uh, there was an ETF around. It was under the FAA um, symbol, and they shut down just at probably the best time to open one, and that <laughs> was after all the restructuring, like American Airlines went bankrupt. Uh, if you take a look at uh, the, 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 the several of the majors, there was, they grew by acquisitions, and what happened is they cut back 25% of the flights, and then they cut back the number of uh of basically those number of flights, and then they took out the bathrooms on uh, some of the air, uh, extra air, uh, extra bathrooms on airplanes, and mm-hmm. added more seats. So yeah. then let's say they went from 150 seats to 165 seats. Now there's 25 percent less flights available, so they get to charge more, and they have more seats. They have more revenue per flight. 
Sure. And that was a big turn. And then they started charging you for everything. You know, every every cost you could think of, they were charging. And what that did is it gave them additional revenue. Like on Bloomberg today was commenting that Delta charges two hundred dollars and they used to charge twenty five dollars. Um, that they're making three billion dollars a year from these additional fees. And and upon the research, I found that that between two thousand and seven and two thousand and thirteen, all these additional fees for baggage, etc., was a revenue generation increase twelvefold. Twelvefold mm. from less than three billion to over thirty four billion dollars. Wow. Uh, and so these airlines like the JetBlues and Southwest were already doubling before the price of fuel fell and tripled. So now with the lower fuel charges, uh, they're just making so much money. And in the first quarter of 2015, they made $3.5 billion in free cash flow. And only a year ago, it was only $700 million. That's a five-fold wow. increase. Wow. So do you think, uh, to what extent has that, has, has that growth and earnings been uh, discounted in, uh, into the market? Do you think, it's full, you think these things are, are fully priced or close to it right now, Frank? Not even close. If you look at the iShares ETF for transports, and jets are only 15% of it, trains and trucks dominate that, that ETF space, that sector of the economy. Uh, they trade at 19 times earnings. Um, jets trade at less than nine. Uh, you have a lot of doubt and skepticism because previously in other cycles, any time this industry made a lot of money, they undercut each other, they served more additional, many additional flights, etc., and it was sort of self-sabotage. It's not going to happen this time. It's a very different discipline. We've witnessed for the first time where American Airlines CEO says, pay me all in stock not income. Give it to me in stock. Uh, um, You have other airlines doing it. You have Delta saying, we're going to increase the dividend by 50% and we want to do a $6 billion buyback. Now, in the first quarter of this year, S&P, 500 biggest companies increased their dividend by 15%. Airlines, 98%. Oh. Oh. Well, you know, I I wonder, Frank, what's made the difference then, I guess, is this consolidation. I'm looking at... uh, uh, you know, at, at some uh, some information that you put out from U.S. Global, uh, and it's showing all of these consolidations. And I was even forgetting some of them. You had American Airlines (TWA), and before that, you had America West and U.S. Air Airways. They combined, and now that those all four airlines are into one. Uh, is is that the top? Uh, is that the best one right now? Do you think that's the the most undervalued one, American Airlines? Well, it is, it is very, very inexpensive, but so is United. Um, I think you still get a better experience with American than United. Um, when people, if you look at readable blogs and the passenger experience, uh-huh. but what the ETF did, what we did was we constructed, was we said, here are the four big horses, and that's United, it is American, it's Delta, and it's Southwest. They're the oligopoly that capture the, the most of the travel, both domestically and across the, going over the ponds of the Atlantic and the Pacific. So then we said, okay, how do we create something that dynamically adapts globally? And so what we did is we created this ETF 
that 12% will be in those four uh, big guys, and which is 48% rebalances every quarter. And then we looked at other jets that are growing at the fastest rate, have the highest returns on capital, and we also included Boeing because it manufactures the jets and uh, some of the jet manufacturers. And then for globally, we picked 20, comp- 20 companies that are in the airline industry that are they're capped at 1% to manage the risk and capture the opportunity. Well, what's really interesting there is that when you go to Mexico, you can buy airports. Beijing is a, is a public company, and you can buy the airport. And these, comp- these companies basically are like private equity toll gate oh. bridges, and they grow every year. It seems like at 15%. Last year, the Macquarie airports jumped by 60%. Wow. So you're actually owning the airlines, uh, the, air, the, air, the airports. Yeah, when you leave America, you can own airports. And so there's, there's, I think three of them are listed in New York uh, from Mexico. So you fly down to Cancun or Acapulco for a holiday, and you're probably landing in a public company, um, uh, and it's a toll gate. Do you own uh, foreign carriers as well? We do. As long as, Jay, they meet the fastest growth in revenue uh, and have the highest returns on capital, uh, that's very, very important to us because we went back and did a lot of data mining, which is called smart beta, and we looked for the factors that allowed it to adapt and adjust to all the bankruptcies, all the restructuring. Uh, it caught Southwest Airlines. It was in JetBlue early, early as a turnaround, etc. And so we applied those factors, and we went back and compared one, three, five, and ten years. So it, those companies that make it a total of 33 names, they have to qualify for those those key fundamental factors. Oh. Well, and so you rebalance how often? Once a quarter. Once we'll a quarter. Up a rebalance, and uh, some of the companies, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be removed and some will be coming in. Uh, the three big horsemen will remain up there because of sheer cash flow and sheer market cap and liquidity. Uh, but after that, it's, uh, it's really uh, a race. Uh, so, so basically, you're seeing 70% of the portfolio uh, are jets and airlines. So it's very torqued to that industry. There's no other ETF. And what I'm really proud about is that in the first three weeks, it started trading such great volume that we have stock options on it. Yeah, so I noticed that. you can buy the ETF and do cover writing. Yeah, you can make some more income that way. Huh? That's uh, Well, it's certainly uh, very interesting, Frank. Thank you very much for passing uh, your information. And of course, uh, people should go to your website to learn more about this and a whole host of funds that you have there, U.S. Global. Uh, was it usglobal.com? I guess I should know by heart uh, your website. But uh, in any event... USfunds.com. It's nice and easy. Yeah, US nice and easy. USfunds.com. All right. So I want to ask you a little bit because you are a globetrotter, as you just noted, uh, uh, my goodness, uh, around the world in uh, not in 60 days, but in uh, seven days, it must, uh, gee, I don't know if I could take that, Frank, but in any event, um, you, you spend a lot of time, I know uh, China and India are two of your uh, two com- countries that you have, at least in recent past, been very, very bullish on, still so? Yeah, I think it's so important, Jay, to follow these two countries because they are 40% of the world's population. And when you look at purchasing and power parity, last year, surprisingly, China surpassed the U.S. Now, our GDP is much higher, and our GDP, when you take a look at the overall factors, but this purchasing power is significant. India surpassed uh, Germany, it surpassed France. So when you look at America and Chindia, that's pretty well, you know, the, the, to me, the, the economic engine of the world. 
Uh-huh. All right. So in India, let's just uh, like to just have you maybe make a couple of comments on that. Prime Minister Modi, uh, he's been in office for over a year now. And, and you noted uh, that re- in a recent blog that you wrote that the results of his economic policies have been mostly positive. What kind of policy changes did he put in place that might have helped uh, improve things in India? I think one of the biggest is, was a vision, a vision that every child would be able to have electricity so they could read and that emotional excitement that took place as a little boy for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he had shown that by streamlining bureaucracy, um, that you could unleash the intellectual capital and also the financial capital. So I think that uh, those that type of vision along with policies of streamlining uh, started seeing more confidence going into their economic engine. They've also been blessed with lower oil prices. That's been a wonderful win for them because India imports a lot of oil. So that's allowed him the flexibility to implement his policies for infrastructure build-out. Uh, he's trying to you know, do as much as he can to catch up to China that uh, has been on turbojets in spending money on building out their infrastructure. Mm-hmm. What could you talk a little bit about some of the demographic factors that bode well for India? Population, I know that's that's certainly one, right? That's that's the one. It's a, a young population. population. They also uh, speak English. Yeah, uh, there are so many uh, uh, services that are that are outsourced for technology that you can yeah. get an extremely educated workforce that uh, work at nighttime. Uh, there are so many companies in America that outsource quant- quantitative analysis to India. In fact, uh, we partnered with Index Group uh, that are in India for uh, our ETF. Um, uh, back testing our, our analysis and making sure that there's an independence that, uh, that with that uh, creation of that uh, ETF. So I think that uh, there's, there's tremendous uh, opportunity that you have a democracy, uh, the biggest democracy in the world. Uh, you have uh, English language, uh, and you have, a, a, uh, I guess you would say, a real thirst to fast-track and be competitive uh, with China in that global arena, and Modi, uh, he grew basically his province, which is like the state of California, faster than China's grown for the past 12 years. Mm-hmm. So he has a track record of doing that in, in uh, a massive area. So I, I think that these are the, the positive parts for him. I think the uh, other parts is um, what they're trying to do in, in, in uh, education is very significant uh, for raising the bar, and I've mentioned this before, there's 600 million people under the age of 25, and they're all wired. They're all hooked up with smartphones. They all want that American dream. So I think that these are very significant demographic features, whereas China doesn't have such a youthful population. They, mm-hmm. They're fast-tracking on aging dem- uh, demographics. Yeah, well, so... Uh... Uh, certainly, uh, certainly is the case, and uh, you would think then the relationship between India and China uh, is it somewhat contentious? It's not as close, perhaps, as China and Russia right now. I would say it's improved from ten years uh-huh. ago. Uh-huh. Um, um, that's go, what I go would ahead. say. Um, what uh, what funds, uh, Frank, at U.S. Global, uh, would you buy if you wanted to get uh, some exposure to India and China? Well, I think that um, 
uh, where our particular fund is more geared in the whole region, and that's sort of the China region opportunity, excluding Japan. Um, but it doesn't invest directly in India. Uh, but it is, uh, it plays, it'll be in Thailand, it'll be in Taiwan, it'll be in Korea and mainland China. It has 10% of the A shares. We caught that early last year. I think uh, when I was on the program, um, what, nine months ago, comment on the breakout taking place in, in China on the A shares. So I think the China region, and there's a wonderful young analyst that's, um, uh, studied in America, uh, Shin, uh, that's with us here in San Antonio. He's from Shanghai. Uh, he does a great job. The fund's performing exceptionally well. So I think uh, that's probably a great way to play that whole region. Um, okay. Yeah. L- let me ask you about the H shares. The H, uh, as in Hillary, I guess you might say. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a word that starts with H. The H shares. Uh, are half the price of the A shares you wrote recently in a blog. Well, for those of us who don't follow China investing as much, uh, can you explain what the H shares are as opposed well, to the H A shares? What's the difference? Hong Kong. So when H- some okay. of the companies that were listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen wanted to, and they qualified to get listed in Hong Kong, they had to have a different set of shareholders, and mainland Chinese could not buy. So it's the same company, same financial reporting, but the liquidity in the interior of China is far greater. So that same company trades at a 40 to 50% premium to the exact same company listed in Hong Kong called H-Shares. Well, quite an arbitrage opportunity for someone, I would think. Yeah, and I think it's a matter of time. You know, I, I think what's really important for the gold, the gold investors to recognize that China wants to become part of a, as a global currency and respect it. Uh, the whole thought process they become a significant gold buyer, uh, record consumption of gold, uh, not only by retail, but it's also institutionally. Uh, they've created a tax-free zone in Shanghai to become, uh, to induce and inspire, uh, North American, European banks to come over to trade gold. Uh, they want to become the price, global price, uh, maker, not taker. So there's a sea change going on with that, and they've recognized that if you want to have a global currency, that that global currency has to have gold behind it. So there's been this increasing consumption. They produce the biggest gold producers a nation in the world, and they and they consume all of their own gold production. Nothing gets sold in the market, and they're the net buyer over a thousand tons this year um, from uh, abroad. So I think that that's important. Now, what does that mean down the road? Is that their currency becomes a global currency? then they're going to uh, make the A shares and the H shares one. So when I that see. happens, there's going to be this huge arbitrage. All right. Um, well, that's certainly something else. And people could be buying the H shares now. It would make sense, huh? Americans can buy H shares? a less risky way than going trying to buy A shares or buying the A share ETF. You're paying right. much higher exactly. PE and you can turn on and buy the same companies um, that are H shares. Okay, well, that's something to keep in mind. Good advice there, no doubt. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Frank, but I believe the Shanghai Exchange, is it a bullion only, a, a, a physical metal only exchange? Correct. Yeah, so you can't play games with the paper markets there as they correct. may be played. 
and, yeah. and the, the largest delivery of gold. So they're taking big bricks from America. So they're going over to Switzerland, being melted down to smaller bricks and wafers, and they're showing up in China. So that's a very long-term tectonic shift, I believe, in the global gold markets. Um, but I, coming back, I'll tell you a great story, because you and I feel the pain of these gold stocks. But sure. I, and, we, and the same thing happened to a lot of people in the airlines. So you need new CEOs. So there's been over a dozen new CEOs in these, in these big uh, cap gold stocks. And I think they're becoming better stewards of capital, just like the airline industry is ahead of them in doing that. So it, it's possible that this, you know, this moving gold, anything above 1200 they've driven their cost down from $1,600 an ounce down to under 1200 Anytime gold is above that level, it starts to throw up a lot of cash flow. And I think uh, a lot of these companies are going to be much more respectful and better stewards of that capital. Frank, you were hitting on the idea that uh, the China wants to have a reserve currency or the reserve currency. You know, it seems to me that what we've had is what some people call a petrodollar that was orchestrated by Kissinger when he went to Saudi Arabia <clears throat> right after Nixon took us off the gold standard in 71. <clears throat> and... Um, some people are, are suggesting that a lot of the conflicts around the world have a lot to do with the maintaining the petrodollar as opposed to and not allowing uh, China uh, or, let's say, the BRICS uh, to oppose the existing order. D- d- what are your thoughts on that? I really haven't delved into that, uh, Jay. I can't really opine on that. Oh, kind. Okay, fair enough. Well, um, we have, of course, growing tensions with, with Russia, it seems. Uh, Charlie Rose interviewed uh, Vladimir Putin the other day uh, and some other leaders. Uh, how do you see Russia fitting into this? Uh, into this? Are you invested in Russia at all, or is that yeah, a country well, I have you stay with? I European fund, and I left Russia last year um, and came back in in January this year. So when you were like, Russia is basically emerging Europe. I have one of the, you know, the first emerging Europe fund. And when you look at that that area of the world, which was at one time one of the fastest growing emerging economies and highly educated. A big reason sure. why we like that versus, say, Africa or Latin America is the level of engineers and scientists mm-hmm. uh, in, in this neck of the woods of the, as a global trotter. But when you look at the world in Eastern Europe, 50% of the market caps are Russian stocks. 50% of those are energy-related. When we do a screen of looking for cash flow return investor capital, these stocks show up as the cheapest in the world, like incredibly cheap. But they all trade off of Brent. So one has to be cognizant of, is Brent moving up or Brent moving down? Is it above Mm -hmm. its 50-day moving average or below? Because they trade with it, and so does the currency. So yeah. you can't hedge the uh, Russian ruble. You can hedge the Turkish lira. You can hedge uh, South African rand. But you uh, you, you can hedge the euro, uh, the British pound. But you can't hedge uh, the Russian uh, ruble. So that is something one has to be aware of when looking at those countries. And the ruble is weak or strong, just like the Canadian dollar, based on the direction of the price of oil. Mm-hmm. Now what uh, happens? Go ahead. No, no. Go go ahead. So we, we, only, we have about three minutes, and I want to get right, to some Russia. other things. But Putin, go ahead. Putin wants to be recognized as, as you know, this significant factor globally. And, um, and what's interesting is the U.S., with technology and fracking, we've surpassed him uh, as being a significant player in the space of oil. So I, I think that um, uh, Russia has its issues. It has nothing to export around the world except for trouble, it appears, or oil and gas. 
But highly educated people, yes, great people. Okay, Frank, uh, with just a couple of minutes left, I've got to ask you about gold. You, uh, you wrote an article uh, that appeared uh, somewhere, I can't remember exactly where. Uh, here's how much gold would be worth if it backed all the debt in the world. Talk to us a little bit about that article with two minutes left. I, I, sure, sure, sure. What I was trying to highlight was this incredibly runaway debt in the U.S. And, and it's not only the U.S., it's Japan, it's in Europe. And for people to put that in context, because there is a thesis out there with James Turk's world, is that there should be collateralized gold-to-debt ratio. They should trade in tandem. So gold is extremely undervalued. And if you wanted to make it back as a, as a total global debt, as 100% backed by gold, it would be $33,000 per ounce. Now, do I think that's going to happen? No, because we have a, a, a banking system that doesn't function that way. But gold should be at least one-tenth of that, and that would be trading around $3,000, $3,300 an ounce. So I was trying to put this in context for investors to recognize um, uh, that the debt has run away relative to gold. All right, Frank. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Just one quick question, though, if you could answer in 10 or 15 seconds. Rate increase or not this year? Interest rates. Yeah, I, I think it depends on PMIs. If global PMIs turn positive in the next uh, two months, then rates are going to rise in the U.S. If they, if, they, if they go sideways, no. Okay, well, thank you very much, Frank. So much more to talk to you about another time, I hope. Thank you so much for being with us today. All right, happy so, investing to all your listeners. All right. Thank you, Frank. Well, folks, uh, that's all the time we have this week. Next week, I'm going to be talking to John Rubino of DollarCollapse.com about the disastrous effects of negative interest rates and the impact they've had ultimately uh, on gold and silver as well. Uh, So you won't want to miss John Rubino. Thanks to each of you for listening. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. 